you've probably uh, all seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, in the movie, it's, a, it's just a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas season movie, right? And uh, what George Bailey is the hero, he's just this ordinary guy who just is a good guy. And seems to be, you know, everybody else around him seems to be getting the breaks, and he's kind of the, the expanding foam for everyone. When they have a problem, he's there to help them out, right? So um, he finally comes to a place where all the dreams that he's had, he's had to let go, let go, let go, until he finally comes to a place where he's so frustrated that he says, I wish I had never been born. And he gets his wish, and, and essentially he sees what his life would be like if he were never born. And he realizes that his life has had an impact on a lot of people around him. And, uh, he, you know, he goes to different situations and say, no, that's not what happened because you weren't there. You didn't save your brother. And no, this, this happened because you weren't there to prevent the pharmacist from giving the wrong medicine. And he goes on and on and on until he realizes that his life has made a difference. And the little things in life, the, the, the way that we uh, talk, the way we behave, the way we interact with people has had an impact on our kids, on our friends, on our neighbors, our co-workers, maybe more than you even know. And so it's very interesting because we often think that our life is just kind of meaningless and we're really not affecting you know, positively people or we're not really making a difference. And in a lot of ways, you're the life, your life, obviously, but the lives of the people around you would be very different if you weren't here. So uh, what I want to do in this series, it's kind of a new series we're starting, and we're going to talk about how God is going to bring salvation to the world. And we're going to talk about today how, why he had to do that, because he created a perfect world that didn't need salvation. It was perfect. God said it was good a couple times. He says it was good. God saw all that he made. It was good, good. But then it needed to be saved. Mankind needed to be saved. And it's very interesting how God did it. He did it through ordinary people. He did it through sinful people, people who you wouldn't have picked, <laughs> you wouldn't have thought, you wouldn't have pictured, and yet God used people. So what we're going to do is we're going to trace a line, and I kind of did that a little bit last weekend, but we're going to do it again this weekend but we're going to go a little bit long, uh, more and we're going to follow this, this line that God is going to use to bring salvation. And we're going to see uh, how that plays out. So um, the first thing I want to say is, you know, if you've ever tried this, and hopefully you will this year, maybe read through the Bible. Uh, we're probably going to come up with a plan either to read through the New Testament or read through the Bible and maybe do it together or something. Haven't really put that together, but got the month to do it, right? Think through it. But it's always good, I think, in, in, uh, when you start a new year out to do something spiritual, have a spiritual goal. And so one of those is maybe to read through the New Testament. But you read through the New Testament, you start with the book of Matthew. Now, some of you have tried that. And you read the genealogies. And you go, okay, skip the genealogy. Let's move on to the, the, the important stuff. And I want to encourage you, don't so the, why, do the, why do you skip the genealogies? Because the genealogies are like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so on, right? 
And so you see, and, and you know, the old English says, and he begot this, and he begot him, and he begot, and it goes on and on and on. You go, okay, let's move on to where we, we're really getting to something. And I'm going to show you from the genealogy why you should not skip the genealogy. Uh, the fact that the, the fact that he, Matthew begins his gospel, he could have started anywhere. He could have because all the four gospel writers start at different places. They're like on four different corners of a street where there's this incident, this accident, or whatever it is, and they have four different perspectives. They have four different stories about the same thing about Jesus, and they're all telling it from a different perspective. Well, Matthew chooses to start with a genealogy, so it's pretty important. But for now, where we're going to begin is we're going to do this wide view. I want to give you a wide view. So we talked a little bit about this last weekend. We said how God created this perfect place, created the heavens, he created the earth, he created the Garden of Eden, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a place where God could walk with man, and uh, Adam and Eve chose to sin, they chose to rebel, and they were, they were uh, escorted out of the garden, and then... Uh, there's, we talked a little bit about the curse, and, uh, and that's where this plan is, begins to be revealed. Now, it's, it's not where God came up with it, because before eternity, before God even created the heavens and the earth, he already had a plan, but now this plan is being played out. And it's Genesis 3.15. We looked at it a little bit, but I want to just look at it for a minute so we can understand. The point I want you to see is, that the world was a perfect place. God said it was good, and then it became bad because man rebelled. And the question is, how is God going to set things right? How is he going to make things right? How is he going to set his world right? Because that's the rest of this, that's the whole story of this, this book we call the Bible. That's the whole story. How is God going to set things right? That have been, that the world now has, is in sin, the, the creation is cursed, man is cursed, the woman is cursed, um, so what, what is, how, are we, how is the curse going to be overcome? That's really a question. And so we have this promise in Genesis 3.15, and it says this. This is God speaking to um, the snake, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this prophecy, in essence, declares that one day, a descendant of the woman. That is, means a human being. There's going to be a human being who is going to come from, the sea, from this woman, Eve, will crush the serpent, Satan, a created being. And Satan is just that. He's a created being who rebelled against God in, in generations earlier, time before. And uh, so he's saying that a human being will crush the serpent. Now, within the course of one chapter, the world has gone from this beautiful orderly, joyful environment to a marred, cursed, sorrowful uh, place. The question, though, that we ask as Adam and Eve leave the garden is, how's God going to do this? How's he going to fulfill this promise? How is he going to, uh, who is this descendant of Eve going to be? When will they come? And, and how will they conquer the serpent? What does that look like? And that is what the rest of the Bible answers. That's essentially the story of how, what, where the rest of the Bible is going. And so I want to walk you quickly through that so you can see that. Because some people say, well, you know, Pastor, I appreciate the New Testament, but the Old Testament, that's a different book, a different time. No, they're all tied together. There's 66 books here, 
And they all bring this whole story. How is this going to happen? How is God going to bring salvation? So I want to look at that. Uh, so the clue, the first clue that we have is that the rescue is going to become through a person. It's going to come through a person. And that's in your notes. You may have gotten notes as you walked in. And it's going to be through a person. And that person is a descendant of Abraham. Uh, <clears throat> so God, in Genesis chapter 12, he chooses Abraham. Abraham. He, his name was Abram. Uh, but he cha God changes his name to Abraham. And he says this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse, uh, and whoever curses you I will curse. And then he says this. Look what he says. This is the part I want you to see. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God chooses a particular man uh, from a great mass of all of humanity in the world today. He chooses Abram. And uh, he reveals himself, and he reveals his plan. So from the beginning, it's clear Abraham isn't a perfect person. You follow Abraham's life. He's not perfect. He, he struggles with unbelief. He lies uh, repeatedly. He behaves uh, out of unbelief. Uh, he, he, but more than anything else, he lives a life that is characterized by faith. And that's the theme you're going to see all through the Old Testament and all through Scripture. That God uses people that aren't perfect, that haven't arrived, that, haven't, that, aren't, that don't know everything, that, that fail miserably. And so you may be here this weekend, you may be here at this campus, at the Rosha campus, uh, you may be listening online and you say, you know, God would never use somebody like me because I don't have my act together, that I make mistakes, that I sometimes doubt, that I sometimes skirt the truth, I sometimes act immorally. And God would never use somebody like me. And I just say, read the Bible. Read the Bible. See, as we follow the narrative of Abram's life, it becomes clear he's not the promised one of Genesis 3.15. So we realize that he isn't going to be the descendant of Eve who is going to crush the, 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 uh, the head of the serpent. Uh, but one of his descendants will be the source of blessing to the whole world. And that's the clue that we see. That somebody through Abraham's seed is going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Now this becomes a huge problem because Abraham and Sarah have trouble having children. Sarah is barren. And she's 100 years plus before she has her first baby. And so the promise comes through Abraham. So Abraham had many descendants uh, starting with Ishmael. Uh, but Abraham, and that was Abraham's son through, through not through his wife, uh, but through... Um, so, so because Ishmael was not through Sarah, he was ineligible to be that descendant. He was ineligible. So uh, he could not receive the promise. And so the promise went through um, Isaac. And Abraham little Isaac, had little Isaac. And what is the first thing God does when Isaac becomes probably a teenager? God says, take, take your son, the one whom you love, to a mountain and offer him up, right? And you know the story there, right? And uh, so Isaac, uh, is, you know, God provides a, a, a lamb in the thicket, but Abraham is obedient to the point where he raises the knife. And God says, stop. And uh, we've talked about that in the past. And then uh, Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has sons. 
And Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel. And the youngest sons of Jacob, uh, through his beloved wife, Rebekah, are Joseph and Benjamin, right? But it's interesting because we find something very interesting. Jacob comes to be uh, older. His sons turn out, this is not a healthy family, okay? This is a messed up family because there's four mothers and there's 12 boys and a daughter and we, can't, we, we don't have time to even talk about it. The family dynamics are absolutely awful here. And there's favoritism and there's all this stuff going on. There's just bad stuff going on. So he's not a perfect dad by any stretch of the imagination, but he comes to the end of his life. And what it was very common for the father to do was to lay hands on each son and give a blessing to each son. And so as Jacob is doing that to his sons, he comes to his son, Judah, and this is what he says. And I don't have this in your notes. You might want to write it down. It's Genesis 49.10. And this is what he says. This is what, this is what um, Isaac, or Jacob says to his son, Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now, what is he saying there? Very important. So we have the, the, the God is bringing the seed of Eve, that's Abraham, and then through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by somebody from your seed. And you say, well, which one of the... Well, it wasn't. It wasn't um, Isaac. It wasn't Jacob. And now we come, we come to Judah. And Judah, you read the story of Judah in there. It, it's awful. He, 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 now, I think he grew and he developed it. Judah, so what does he say about Judah? He narrows down the promise to the line of Judah. Somebody from Judah's family line is going to bring this blessing to all the nations that was promised to Abraham, okay? It's going to come through the line of Judah. And it says the scepter will not depart. Well, that's the idea of a kingly ruler who will receive tribute and obedience from all the people of the earth. So what, what Jacob is saying to Judah, he's saying, he's saying, through you, there's going to be a descendant who will be a king, and all the nations of the earth will bow down to this king through Judah, through the tribe of Judah. All right. So the second clue that we see is the deliverer will be a king from the line of Judah, from the line of Judah. Now, we move hundreds of years later, and we start having, Israel starts having kings. And we have kings like Saul, and we have a king named David. And uh, we discover the prophecy of Jacob, initially fulfilled in the descendant of Judah, was named David. So, like Abraham, Jacob and Judah before him, David's life was marked by sin and failure, even though he was known uh, as a man of faith and it's even said of David, he was a man after God's own heart. So now the line has come through Judah to David. And remember, as you read through, uh, when they're looking for, the prophet is looking for the next king after Saul has kind of failed, uh, the prophet comes looking for the next king, and they come to the house of Jesse, and Jesse has all these good-looking, strapping sons. And, uh, of course, 
the prophet comes in and he, and he says, he, he says, well, it must be this oldest one. No, it wasn't. Must be, well, no, no, no. Goes down through all the sons. And God says, no. And finally, the prophet says to Jesse, he says, is, is there another son that you have? Oh, yeah. There's that runt David out in the sheep, tending the sheep. Yeah, bring him in. And bring, they bring David in, they clean him up, and God says, he's the one. He's the one. And David became not a perfect king, not a morally, <laughs> you read his life, it's not a good moral life. He wasn't a good father either, but he was a great king. And it says about David, he was a man after God's own heart. We discover one of David's descendants is going to be the promised king. So what we have here is we have a promise that God makes to David. And this is what God says to King David. All right? So now we follow the line from Eve to Abraham to Jacob to Judah to David. And this is what it said about David. He's in second, this is 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, what he's saying is pretty important because he's saying that this king is going to be of the line of Judah, of the line of David, and he's going to be a king forever. He's going to be an eternal king. This, the king deliverer, will bring an eternal kingdom. Now, after, so there's multiple kings that come in the nation of Israel some to the north, some to the south, because the nation divides into two. And, and then there, um, there's, this, there's a bad time that goes through the nation of Israel. They begin to worship other gods. They, they practice idolatry. And they reject God's rule. And they have horrible kings. And the Old Testament prophets uh, during this time declare that uh, God's warning. They basically keep saying, you need to repent, you need to stop, or God's going to judge your, you as a nation. And they don't listen. And so they, they are warned, but judgment comes. And uh, the, there's a period of national decline. Um, <clears throat> the prophets uh, go on. They warn people. They reject the Lord. Um, but there's a time the prophets also speak about. The prophets talk about a, a day that's coming. It's almost supernatural. It's almost wild it's it's beyond comprehension it's so incredible and and let me read you a couple of verses this is isaiah eleven six. this is the day that, that that some of the isaiah speaks about he says the wolf will live with the lion the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together a little child will lead them you say where in the world is that taking place in the future it goes on to say, look at Isaiah uh, 2.4. It says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There has never been a day on this earth yet where this has been fulfilled or where this has ever happened. But it's going to. So the prophets look to a day, a day of hope, a day of peace, a day where people won't be fighting, a day where there won't be wars, a day there won't be soldiers. 
There'll be a day of peace, but it's not yet. So the people are warned by the prophets. They're told, you need to repent or judgment is coming. But they're also told, but there's a glorious future waiting. So they have these different themes going on in the prophets. So one time you're reading Isaiah, and he's talking about this this beautiful time that's coming. The other time he's talking about this suffering and the the, the judgment that's coming from God. And, And it's from the same prophet. What happened? Well, because the people fail to repent, God eventually sends them into exile. And they're conquered by foreign nations. First by Assyria in 722 and then by Babylon in 605. So the nation is taken into captivity. And the nation nation of Israel is in captivity for 70 years. You want to know why 70? You ever think about why is it 70 years? Some of you know this. Every seven years, every seven years, God instructed his people to give the land rest. They were to rest the land every seven years. And so for every year that they failed to give the land rest, that was a year they would spend in captivity. Seventy years. That's where they came up with the number. So they returned from exile, and they received the promised land. They experienced nothing that could remotely be described as a fulfillment. It's almost kind of a letdown. In fact, when they rebuild the temple and, and they worship in the temple, the older men look at it and they go, oh, it's such a letdown. And the psalmist reflects this attitude. I've got bits and pieces of these psalms. Let me just string them together a little bit. This is Psalm 89. You might want to read this later on. You said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. I have found David, my servant, with my sacred oil, and I anointed him. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. I will not violate my covenant or alter my lips Uh, what my lips have all uh, uttered. In other words, God says, the promises I made to David, I'm going to keep, right? But then this same psalm, as you go down later on, the psalm says this, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been angry with your anointed one. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your former great love, uh, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? So the psalmist affirms the surety of God's promises at the same time, uh, uh, the promises to David, while at the same time crying out in pain. Uh, And they're asking, why has God abandoned his promises? Why has he broken his covenant? Where is your steadfast love which you swore to David? Have you ever had those moments with God? Where you, God has been faithful and you just see God's faithfulness and goodness And then all of a sudden, there's a time that feels like God has abandoned you, and you cry out to God and say, God, wait a minute. I thought you promised to be with me. Why am I feel so, why do I feel like you're so far away? See, the Old Testament ends with a messianic promise, unfulfilled, looking ahead to God's future action. So so we have this messianic promise, but we have this 
this, this moment of this time of uneasiness, this time of God has made these promises, he's going to keep them, but it, we don't see how he's going to keep them. It doesn't seem like he's going to keep them. How is God going to come through and keep them? And then we have a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years. And then we read the Gospel of Matthew. And where did I, what did I say about the Gospel of Matthew? What does it talk about? Genealogy? Genealogy? So now let's read Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what Matthew's doing here? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you know that Messiah you were waiting for? You know that king you were waiting for? You know that deliverer you were waiting for? He's here. He's absolutely here. So that's why I say don't. And let me show you why you shouldn't ever, you know, read read through the genealogies. So the entire New Testament begins with a verse that declares that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the long-awaited Messiah. That's why Matthew 1.1 is so incredibly important. Because it's the promises that God made to Abraham and, and to David, and, and now it's being fulfilled. It's all coming true. He's saying, this Jesus is not just an ordinary child. This Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the promised seed of Eve, who will set everything right. The entire Old Testament progressively narrows down to the identity of God's Messiah until the day he finally arrives. The day he comes into creation. And how does he come into creation? <laughs> he doesn't come with angels, you know, on a tr- with a train and, and a royal parade. He comes in a backwater town through a virgin at night. As a baby. And he comes to undo the work of the fall. To destroy the works of the devil. And to begin to set things right right once and for all. Here's what I want you to see through all this. I want you to fall in love with with the whole Bible. Because the message is tied together. I also want you to understand that God uses people that aren't perfect people that fail, people that are overlooked. And, and I want to give you some examples of that. God loves to use over, ordinary, overlooked, and marginalized people to carry out his per- perfect salvation plan. And he still does the same today. So in the genealogy of Jesus, it's very surprising. Now, as you read it, because you, you don't read it with Jewish eyes, and we don't read it from that time, we just pass over this. But in the genealogy, so I read verse 1 of the genealogy talking about Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, the promised Messiah. But as you read down through that, there's four women in that genealogy. And you say, so what? Well, they don't put women in genealogies. (laughs) Uh, Most ancient genealogies excluded women, particularly women who who would tarnish the family line. The idea of a genealogy is to show that you are, you're, you know, you're the good breed. <laughs> you have some good bones to you, you know. You, you, know you, you don't have any skeletons in the closet, so to speak. You don't want to talk about, now we all do, right? We all have that Uncle Harry or, you know, you know we all have those people that we don't really want to talk about. But for, for the king, the Messiah, you want this perfect lineage. It's not perfect. 
It's not perfect. Let me give you uh, the four women and just give you just a quick uh, understanding. Uh, so you, you have Tamar, and Tamar was a Canaanite. She uh, disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, Judah. Yes, that's what I just said. And it was through... <laughs> so so that you can read about the whole story. Remember how I said Judah wasn't a very good... No, Jesus came through the line of Judah. <laughs> and uh, you can read about the whole story. It's, you can find it in, in Genesis 38. Buckle up, though. Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite. Probably a prostitute who lied to protect the Israelite spies when they spied out the land in, Jer in Jericho. And she helped overthrow the city that she lived in. Okay? So she's a, a liar, she's a prostitute, and she betrayed her own people. Okay? She's in the genealogy. Ruth was a Moabite woman who moved to Israel upon the death of her husband. And, and she was an outsider. She was a Moabite. She wasn't a, a Jew. She wasn't a Hebrew uh, woman. She was an outsider. Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, if you know the story about Bathsheba, it, by the way, notice it, it mentions Bathsheba, and it doesn't mention Uriah. It mentions Bathsheba. Now, what happened there? Well, nothing great except that David fell in love with Bathsheba, maybe fell in lust with Bathsheba is a better way to put it, and basically had a baby with Bathsheba and uh, tried to hide it, and the way he tried to hide it was by having uh, her husband murdered on the front line of the battle, okay? And so this is, this is, this is, uh, the, this is Bathsheba who, who is uh, there. Uh, she fathered a child by... Um, and, you know, David married Bathsheba and fathered a child by uh, her and killed her husband. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And then you see Mary. You say, well, Mary was a virgin. She was pure. She was innocent. She was, yeah, did you talk to her neighbors? Did you talk to her family? I mean, think about this. Let's just say you go home and you're married. You're a guy. And your wife says, honey, I'm pregnant. And you go, well, I kind of had a procedure, so that's kind of impossible. Right? And, and, and you go, no, it's miraculous. It's God. You, it, just in the same way that you said, okay, let's stop. Let's stop right now. That, that's the way Joseph you know, some people say, we'll talk more about this next week, uh, but some people say, well, I just struggle with the virgin birth. So did Joseph. <laughs> he did, right? He says, I don't believe you. I'm not going to dishonor you, but I don't believe you. <laughs> I just don't believe you. So Mary falls in line with, with uh, these women. She conceived a child in an unusual, questionable, and surprising manner to the point that even her fiancé, and by being a fiancé in that day was much more binding than it is what we think of today, he was ready to put her off and divorce her. 
So the family tree anticipates the virgin birth of Jesus, breaking the normal patterns um, of presenting information. So one of the interesting things, so that's, uh, you, you'll, as you read through the genealogy, you'll see this repetition, right? So the repetition kind of goes like this. It'll mention the father's name, and then uh, it'll say the father of this. So it'll say Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, you know. Um, and it goes on, and it'll mention, it'll mention it like that. So Matthew does the same thing. He repeats this pattern for every single father-son pair until you come to Joseph. So what you're expecting is you're expecting Joseph to be the father of Jesus. But that's not what's down there. What's down there in the text is that you, you, you see this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ or Messiah. What is going on here? The Greek language is very clear. It's, it's, it's specifying clearly that Jesus is the biological son of Mary, but not of Joseph. Let me say that one more time. What the Greek language and the way that it's laid out there is saying is, it's saying that Mary is the biological son, or excuse, Jesus is the biological son of Mary, but not of Joseph. Although Joseph is Jesus' legal adoptive parent, he is not the biological father. So with Matthew's genealogy, God has at last revealed the hero of the redemptive story and it's none other than Jesus. And his birth is a surprising, miraculous mystery. But he's here. <laughs> so the clue number four is this. The Messiah will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem through a miraculous process. And his name is Jesus. That's why you read the genealogy. Now, Some of you are thinking this Christmas, you know what we should do? We should do one of those genealogy DNA tests. We should spit in a tube or put the Q-tip in our mouth and swish it around and send it to a lab and find out who we really are, right? Can I just encourage you not to do that? And I'll tell you why. Okay, I'm just going to share a little bit for a minute. So, um, I thought that would be a cool idea, and I did it with Carol. And I've been telling you for 20 years, I'm part Irish, and I'm part Polish. My mother's name was Sawinski, okay? Well, I'm not Irish, and I'm not Polish, I'm 60% German. I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I told my brothers, I said, this is what I found out. Your genealogy is going to be the same as mine. No, you're lying. No, I'm not. I think I might get a second opinion. I don't know. But here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to take away this weekend. It's very easy for us to say, you know, God is looking for perfect people, for good people, for righteous people to carry out his will. 
And I hope that what you'll get from this message is this. Number one, a love for the Bible, the whole Bible. That God has a plan and God has a message. By the way, Jesus came and the idea is he still hasn't set things right. We still haven't seen the lion lay down with the lamb, right? We haven't seen that day yet. That day's still coming. Because in the prophets, we see two themes. We see one of the Messiah who's king of kings and ruling over all the earth for eternity. But the other picture is we see a suffering servant who's dying, who's suffering. We haven't seen this fully play out yet, but we know who the Messiah is. We know he's come. So what was spoken to Adam and Eve and to the snake, we see who, who's, and, and on the cross, that's what Jesus did. But here's what I want you to see. Here's the application for you and for me. God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for willing accomplices. He's looking for people who say, you know what, God, today I just want to serve you. I just want to walk with you. And when you do that, God will do amazing things in your life and in the lives of the people around you. You see, your life does matter. And your life is affecting people. But as you allow God to affect your life, you will allow your life to have a positive, eternal effect on the people around you. So let me encourage you to do that. We'll talk more about that whole idea of what does it look like to be this willing accomplice for, God, for the will of God. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But for now, would you just stand with me? Let's close. So Father, thank you that you're not looking for perfect, uh, well-bred <laughs> people to carry out your perfect will you're just looking for people who are willing to show faith who are willing to trust you who are willing to get up after we sin and confess it take full responsibility for it confess it to you and and allow you to, to brush us off and get us back into the race thank you father that our lives can have a positive effect on the people around us thank you that you love us so much and you care for us so much and I would ask, Father, that you would just uh, uh, help us to be what you want us to be. Help us to be willing accomplices for your will. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.